Hello and welcome to the Lake Superior Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Brooks Johnson, and with me today is Paul Lundgren. Hey, Paul. Howdy, howdy. Thanks for coming today. Each month we bring you a reading from a local author, followed by a talk about the craft. Local, if you aren't yourself, means northern Minnesota and Wisconsin. Paul runs Perfect Duluth Day, a local blog you should definitely keep in your tabs for daily reading, and is also the author of The Spall Ribbon. On today's episode, Paul will be reading... Well, what are you going to be reading? Uh, this is uh, the story of my uh, evolution of grocery shopping throughout my life. I call it grocery evolution, so Excellent. Uh, it, uh, it begins... Uh, I think it begins the same kind of for anybody, unless you grew up on a farm or, you know, for whatever reason, don't go to a grocery store. But, sure. um, and that's uh, your parents taking you to the store and cramming you into that uh, cold metal seat facing the opposite direction of traffic on the grocery store aisle. Absolutely. And uh, that uh, never quite works out. It doesn't take much kicking and screaming to get mom to let you loose mm-hmm. so you can scamper all over the store and knock things over which is uh, to be expected. Uh, It's not your fault. You don't want to be there. You were brought against your will, and the tantrum is to be expected. Also, as long as you're being held hostage on this mission, it only makes sense to grab all the low-hanging snack food and try to use it as a bargaining tool. If Mom will simply buy a box of individually wrapped corn syrup wads, you'll stop tugging on her pants to constantly beg for them. It's a fair deal. Eventually, of course... Your parents smarten up and lock you in the car. Soon you become old enough to be left home alone, and it's at this point you enter a long period where you never go to the grocery store. Food is just delivered to you and magically appears in cupboards. This is the halcyon period of your sustenance-acquiring existence. When you hit your middle teens, you enter a convenience store era. You don't need to work for your three square meals yet, but if you want a burrito on the fly or your parents aren't stocking you up with a suitable quantity of donuts, Doritos, and Coca-Cola, the corner store is there to serve you. This is an amazing shopping experience that makes you grow to resent your parents because you can recall being dragged to the big supermarket on those 45-minute expeditions when you were little, but now you learn that in truth, one can fuel the body as easily as a car. If you're a dirtbag from West Duluth like me, however, you quickly come to realize that whatever few bucks you manage to scrape together for convenience store junk food will buy you twice the quantity of the same junk food at the local Super One. This begins your period of being a convenience item shopper at the grocery store. You run in, you know where the cookies are, you grab them in bulk and are out faster than if you were robbing the place. Sadly, This is a very short-lived phase. Adulthood and independence are just around the corner, and soon you are fully responsible for your own hunting and gathering. Still, those trips to the grocery store are somewhat infrequent, tempered by pizza delivery and fast food restaurants. You only need to go buy ketchup and cereal about every four weeks. It's during this time that you slowly rediscover the grocery store and see it with new eyes. You learn that macaroni and cheese can be purchased for pocket change. This is a stunning revelation because when you were a kid, mac and cheese was considered a treat. It was one of your favorite meals. Why didn't mom and dad just buy that every night? It would have been heaven. 
and they could have saved some of that grocery money and bought you a nice car or something. What were they thinking? The other thing you discover is that chocolate ice cream costs the same as vanilla. Why in the hell did your parents buy vanilla? You always assumed it was because of the discount. Because somehow in the adolescent mind, vanilla is not a flavor. It is the absence of chocolate. You also start to wonder as you mature why the magazines at grocery store checkouts are so stupid. Of course, it's not surprising that stupid magazines exist in checkout aisles, but it is strange that all of the magazines are stupid. You won't find a single copy of something that even pretends to be intelligent. But I digress. As the years go on, your taste buds mature a bit, and you start to occasionally look around to see what else the store has to offer besides frozen pizza and rice-a-roni. But a lot of it still doesn't make sense. You walk down the snack aisle past the Keebler fudge stripes and see things like seasoned rye crisp. And you wonder what happens to a person in life that makes him pass up deluxe chocolate cookies in favor of whatever rye crisp is. While these bachelor years play out, going to the grocery store is never really a major nuisance. It's a necessary chore that can be quickly completed. Even when you find companionship and get married, going to the grocery store is not a huge ordeal unless your spouse likes to cook and has given you a list. Having a grocery list composed by someone else, even the person you love unconditionally and intend to spend the rest of your life with, is one of the most frustrating vexations known to man. The reason is this. You are being asked to do something you've done hundreds of times before, but now you have to do it differently. It's like getting instructions to drive a car that tell you to put the key in the ignition, but you don't know the ignition is in the glove box on this model. Being sent on a grocery shopping mission is never advertised as what it is, by the way. It always starts with, can you pick up a few things at the store? A little post-it note comes out with, two or three items on it. The moment you agree to the task, cupboard doors start swinging open, bags of flour are carefully examined, the refrigerator inventoried, and the post-it note soon looks like it's been colored in by a four-year-old during a long wait for pigs in the blanket at Perkins. A grocery list never starts on a standard eight and a half by 11 inch sheet of paper, but it always ends up with enough items on it that it should have been. And no matter how many details are provided on the list, they always seem to trip me up more than help. 16 ounce can of crushed tomatoes. That's pretty specific. When I start looking at the 16 ounce tomato cans, I discover peeled tomatoes, diced tomatoes, strained tomatoes, petite cut tomatoes, fire roasted tomatoes, stewed tomatoes, tomato puree. Puree? Is that the same as crushed? Probably not. So I stare and stare at the tomato cans, trying to decide if I need to make a phone call or find a store employee to help. After about 10 minutes, I finally re realize crushed tomatoes are only available in 8-ounce cans. Mathematics can easily solve that problem, but inadequate understanding of food display theory has already taken precious time out of my life. Though specific details on a grocery list can confuse me, they're there at my insistence after several experiences with vague items on the list. One time, in the middle of my assigned grocery agenda, was the word 
Japs. After spending a few minutes trying to figure out if the word should be attached to items above or below it on the list, like cayenne pepper Japs or Japs fish sauce, I finally decided I had to ask for help. There wasn't an employee around, so I asked an elderly woman shopping the same aisle. Excuse me, I, I need a fresh set of eyes on my grocery list. I can't tell what my wife wrote. What do you think this word is? It looks like Japs! Do you know what Japs are? Well, that's what we used to call Japanese people, but it's kind of offensive now. After asking two more customers, I finally came across an employee who thought for a moment and said, could Japs be an abbreviation for jalapenos? Maybe she wants jalapeno peppers. How is Japs an abbreviation for jalapeno peppers? I don't know. How would you abbreviate it? Well, I wouldn't, but thank you for your help. That must be what she meant. Of course it was. After many years of routine failure to locate items, I get pretty good details on grocery lists now. On a recent shopping list was black bean garlic sauce with the added note in jar in Chinese section. Okay, well, first of all, there isn't a sign anywhere at Super One that reads Chinese section, and I feel like I've offended the Asian race enough as it is at this store, but I guess I'll look for rice and then work my way out from there. Sure enough, I find several jars of various sauces, but none of them are black bean garlic sauce. Since not being able to find things on the grocery list is not a rare problem for me, but instead something that happens every single time, I know I have to ask for help. This is not a problem I'll be able to solve on my own, and I know from experience the friendly folks at Super One are quite often able to assist me in short order. This time, however, I'm in trouble. As soon as I say the words black bean garlic sauce, the supermarket employee winces like she's about to be pricked for blood. She stocks shelves for a living and has a pretty good idea what inventory is where. When a food item sounds unfamiliar to her, it is. After she spends three minutes studying the same jars I've already spent eight minutes studying, she tells me she has an idea of where it might be. Wait here, she tells me. So I do. After a minute or two, she returns with another employee who is just as confused as she is. Together, they decide I should buy chili garlic sauce, because that's the closest thing to black bean garlic sauce. Okay, I say, are you sure you haven't heard of black bean garlic sauce? Because my wife wrote that it's in a jar in the Chinese section, so she must have bought it here before. This causes them to start digging deep into the shelves, then huddle up for a conference and make several calls on their walkie-talkies, but in the end, the recommendation is still that I should buy garlic chili sauce instead of black bean. I know this must be wrong, but I did the best I could. When I present the sauce to my wife, however, I learn to my surprise, it'll be just fine. The specific note about where to find the mystery sauce wasn't so specific after all. Well, I've never bought that before, my wife says. I'm trying a recipe tonight. It said on the recipe that black bean garlic sauce is in a jar in the Chinese section, so I thought that would help you find it. Well, gosh, I suppose that would have been helpful if the author of that magazine recipe shopped at the West Duluth Super One. 
These routine challenges have led me to develop a little fantasy to ease my stress at the grocery store when I'm looking back and forth between my list and an unaccommodating shelf. As frustration sets in, I imagine myself throwing a tantrum, running down the aisle, knocking all the groceries on the floor. Think of me as the Godzilla of the Asian food aisle. That's what I want to do because I feel like that little kid again who hates being put through all this. It turns out life comes full circle, even in grocery shopping. And what have you now? Let's see, how do I describe this? Um, back in 2011, I had this uh, device where I would, uh, if I overheard someone say something interesting or something that I had a, some commentary on in my head, um, I kind of collected them into little things called uh, things she said. And so this is just one of those that I came across uh, this afternoon that's been lying around the house for a while. Chelsea said the various rocks of the world have different psychological effects on people, particularly agates, which are an aphrodisiac. That's why people around Lake Superior are always thinking about sex, she said. There are all these agates driving us crazy. It makes it hard to think about anything else. She presented this bit of information as if she'd read it in a scientific journal. I didn't believe her, but I still considered searching the subject on the internet. Then I realized that, in this case, knowing the truth wouldn't change my life at all. Very nice. Yeah. That's a flash nonfiction right there. So. I don't know. I've always, uh, I've always had a uh, tendency... I like to write really short things... Uh, which uh, may seem odd having just read a 15-minute long thing. but that, sure. uh, And I'm writing a lot more long-form essays now just because of uh, Perfect Dilute Day and the Saturday essay series that we have there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of, my job as the editor of that is to write an essay every time no one else does. Um, and so, I don't know, probably out of 150 of them, I may have written as many as 40 or something, I don't know. Um, And so other than that, it's been pretty rare. It was pretty rare for me in years before that to write anything of any length at all. Usually 800 words would be like the max I would write about anything. Um, And if I could write something in one sentence, I would. In fact, uh, one of the things I wrote in about 1998 or so, it was called The Unfinished Sentence, um, which uh, is uh, what, what, what some people consider to be the greatest sentence ever written, and it's not even finished. Uh, and it goes a little something like this. There, there's, I'll give you, an, once again, more setup than, than... There has to be more setup than anything for this because it's not even a full sentence. Right. Um, but uh, I was at the Club Saratoga uh, many years ago, and I went into the men's room... And I came out and sat down at a table and I felt compelled to share with the rest of the people at the table what I had experienced in the men's room. Uh, And so uh, this was the sentence, or half sentence, that came out. The amount of pubic hair in the sink seemed to indicate... (laughs) And there is no end to that sentence because I have no idea what that would indicate. Yeah. And it would take some serious research to find out. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know what kind of inspector you can call in to get to the bottom. 
Um, well, tell me a bit about about why you started writing nonfiction and uh, and kind of what you find rewarding about it in general. Um, you know, why 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 true stories? You know. Oh, um, I don't know. I I kind of mix the two a lot, mm. um, but mostly uh, mostly you write nonfiction. Yeah, a lot of anecdotal essays, and that's. Um, obviously the easiest thing to write because you don't have to make anything up, right? You just, uh, uh, it's pretty easy to just bash out what happened to you and then go back and work through it and like, all right, how do I make these details better? How do I cut this down? How do I make this, uh, how do do I make this, how do I cram a few extra laughs in there? That kind of thing. Um, So it comes, I think, for me anyway, easier than than fiction. Um, But... So the blending of the two, sometimes I, sometimes I like to just toy around and say, all right, well, this happened with me and my friend Fred, but I'm going to make it about Alex instead and incorporate uh, some fact about him because his life is more interesting than Fred's right. and, and weave it together that way. Uh, very yeah. cool. Okay. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's what this, uh, the, the book, The Spall Ribbon, is kind of, uh, kind of about. Is the, the Spall Ribbon is the term I use for the... For the uh, handsome ribbon that ties together the fact and fiction in the book. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so not all true and not all fiction. Exactly. Very good. So tell us where we can find uh, your book, Spall Ribbon. Uh, Spall Ribbon is available at Zenith Bookstore in West Duluth, or if you're on the interwebs, you can go to paulundgren.com, click on the Spall Ribbon, and uh, order your copy there. Uh, I also have a chapter in the new book called The Will and the Way, which is... Uh, compiled by Don Ness and uh, Don Larson. And I also have a sentence in a photography book called In and Out of Context by Tim White. Excellent. Um, and it took me uh, about 20 seconds to write the sentence, and then it took me two hours to completely rewrite it uh, before I was satisfied with it. Um well, let's let's go back to the beginning, and uh, you know, why did you ever start writing? And, and you know, tell me about the rise of Perfect Duluth Day. Well, I, I think I got into writing. You know, I, looking back, I always kind of thought that I got into writing writing specifically for the purpose of goofing off, hmm. because it definitely started in school, and it started uh, passing uh, notes and, and eventually passing notebooks around, like. Right whole volumes titled Adventures in Study Hall, uh, the, which if you ever come across a notebook that says Adventures in Study Hall, uh, let me know I left it on a DTA bus in 1986, oh, and uh, I would like to have that back, although I'm sure once I got it back and read it, I would, uh, I would prefer to have not had it back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who knows? Um, but I think... That, so that probably is how I got started in writing. I think why I continued is it's just my way of figuring things out. Um, the process of writing really really helps drill down um, any kind of opinion you have about anything or any, any type of feelings you want to reconcile about yeah. something that happened to you. Yeah. Um, you know, once you, once you meditate on it, and write about it, you know, it, taking that time to examine what other people were thinking in that situation and really exploring how it all played out and, and what it might mean in a larger picture. Um, yeah, that, I think that's, that's what I enjoy about it because it's, um, 
otherwise, uh, I don't figure things out as easily. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, I love what my one of my favorite things about writing is the process of editing. Because if you listen to me in an interview, I'm a nincompoop, and I can't pick the right words all the time, and stammer and all that. None of that happens in writing, because... That's right. Cut it out, fix it up. <laughs> and so I can be one articulate son of a bitch on yeah. paper compared to a person. Agree, 100%. That's, <laughs> as a lifelong mumbler, I too have found solace <laughs> in a louder, more cohesive and clear voice in, in writing, so... Oh, that's good to hear. So do you keep, uh, you know, a journal and then just sort of an everyday, what's kind of your routine uh, to go from ideas and real events into like what you just read? Uh, I used to keep little journals like periodically. Um, so I would, I would keep a journal for three or four months and then I wouldn't for a year and then I'd come back to it here and there. Um, but most of the, I didn't, I didn't have like a writing journal where I really sat down and you know, I'm going to write a paragraph about what happened to me day to day. I would write like a note, a sentence, like, right. you know, today we threw eggs at Maynard or something, uh, you know, just a little something to help me remember that a thing happened in right. the past. And so there have been times, you know, 20 years later when I've come across something like that and I'm like, oh, you know, that was actually an interesting thing that happened and I'm going to turn this into a story. Right. Um, tell me about your work with uh, Perfect Loose Day and uh, you know some of the writing you see in the community. I mean, you're getting a lot of people putting their voice out there and helping them, uh, you know, sort of establish community that way. I mean, yeah, like like almost any endeavor, you know, it didn't work out uh, exactly like I planned at all, mm -hmm. but in many ways worked out better. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd had the idea for a while that uh, let's uh, let's put together something on the website that's. Uh, sort of a formal essay it's more worked on than the type of stuff you'd usually see on the website which back then was uh, uh there were a lot it was you know originally that website was sort of treated like a facebook for duluth mm -hmm. you know anybody in the community had an account and they would go on there and post two sentence things like you'd see on facebook today mm -hmm. and so it's evolved in the course of 16 years to be almost more of uh, a journalistic type of thing than, um, than that type of social media that it was in the beginning. Right. And, but a lot of the things on there aren't uh, long-form things that people really think of. And so three years ago, we decided, um, I, well, I had the idea, and I went to a couple of people who I thought could write these essays and said, if I do this and commit to a weekly essay, like, can you write one every six weeks? Right. And I went to five other writers, and every one of them said yes. And so I, I, I was kind of surprised, because I expected most of them would not say yes, and the idea would either die, or I'd have to say, well, maybe we'll do this monthly, or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, what didn't play out quite well, so my thought was, we'll have six writers, and hopefully other people will contribute too, right. but if they don't, we're covered. These uh, six people can cover these six weeks. What happened was other people contributed way more than I would have anticipated, mm -hmm. but three of the original six uh, were out real fast. Mm -hmm. Like one or two essays, and they're like, you know, this is a big commitment. I'm sorry I overreached. Backed up. That'll happen. Um, so, it's, um, so that's made it at times more of a struggle to put it together. Um, but also, uh, it's given it, 
it's had it's had a lot more variety of voices than I expected. Um, so I think it's it's been I would have to say the most successful recurring feature on the website. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. You know, I noticed in the in the PC Red um, that you started in second person, and the you know the very general you you know, and like we can all relate most of us to what you talked about, and then you moved into first person, the specific. Um, you know, was that a, a conscious choice, and how do you like to structure stories like that? Um, um, that was not necessarily. I've written it long enough ago now that it's hard for me to remember if how much of a conscious choice it was, but it was something that had to happen for the second half of the story because it was mm -hmm. that search through the grocery store was very personal, right. and I think I think people can identify with that but maybe not as much so as the earlier part of the essay where I feel like those are things that kind of everyone's life goes through that for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, not everyone gets sent for black bean chili sauce, um, but many people do. Right. Um, so it was kind of, I guess I could have chosen to write completely from the first person up front and be consistent with that. Um, I don't remember how why I would have how I would have intention what in my intention was when I mm -hmm. sat down to do it. Yeah. Um, I may I I probably haven't thought about it at all until this moment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got one last question for you then. Uh, what are you reading right now? Uh, right now, I'm in the middle of you know uh, Tony Durkin's in uh, uh, Zena City Publishing. Mm -hmm. um, he puts out these massive books of history faster than I can read them somehow yeah. and so I'd like to say that I'm reading the beer book now but I'm still on the parks book yeah. from the previous year um, but and I'm maybe like a tenth of the way into it but and the, the, these books are kind of more meant I think to just kind of flip through and sure. you know you look at pictures and then you see something and then you read the story about that and then you come back to it later mm -hmm. but I'm methodically reading that entire book wow. um, and just kind of getting started on that but I'm also going to be reading a lot of Hemingway uh, soon mm -hmm. because I'm going to Key West and the Hemingway house is there so and I've read one Hemingway book in my life so I'm I'm going to crash course myself on Hemingway on the airplane do you find that what you read uh, influences what you write and yeah, I think it, it it does, and I'm I'm pretty confident that it does it in in perceptible ways. Just because there are so many influences, and um, it's really been amazing to be a writer in Duluth, Minnesota, with so many where so many of these writers I uh, will run into at Walgreens or uh, have dinner with or go out for a beer with see around town all the time they'll be my English instructor mm -hmm. in college um, so that those those relationships and reading those works and talking with those people has definitely had a tremendous influence and uh, if there's if there's one if there was an influence that uh, might be perceptible and it'll only be perceptible probably if I tell you and mm -hmm. then you'll maybe see it but uh, Vonnegut Mostly, mostly the thing I steal from Vonnegut is I will do this. Use a colon for comic effect. <laughs> oh, you want to talk about uh, fantastic influences on a writer? Mm. Uh, Linda Kabinsky was an influence on me because she moved out of Duluth. She's not a writer, but she moved out of Duluth 
and left me a bunch of her Vonnegut books when oh, she moved. Fantastic. So. Well, here's to you, I'll, I'll, I'll list her as an influence. Fantastic. <laughs> well, I've got one more real last question now. Uh, what, uh, what would you say for anyone aspiring to write uh, nonfiction, whether it's two paragraphs or 20 pages uh, or a full memoir? Uh, you know, I've never been able to tell, have any advice whatsoever on ideas. Be- I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how to sit down and come up with ideas. They're just, there's so many of them all around me at all times that that's like finding the time to write is far more difficult than ever coming up with an idea. And I, 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 I don't think I would ever sit at a computer and try to come up with an idea for a thing to write about. Um, that just never happens ever. Like if I didn't have something to write about, I would go outside and go for a walk or something and not write. Like writing is the compulsive thing that I have to do to get the idea or whatever it is out of my system. Fantastic. So I couldn't, I couldn't begin to tell anyone how to get an idea. I mean, you just have to see it and recognize it. You know, it'll, it'll come to you or it won't. Yeah, and of course, find the time and make the time and uh, make sure that you do it. Be compulsive. Yeah. <laughs> My advice is be compulsive. <laughs> Just type until there's nothing left. <laughs> well, thanks, Paul. It's been a great chat, and thanks for reading, too. All right, thank you. And I got, I got, I've got a, a piece of someone else's writing to steal for the, la- for the final. Shall we? If I may, I'll yes. go out with this. This is, uh, I've had this... Uh, in uh, my files for 18 years and refer to it every now and then, but it's, it's appropriate, I think, for uh, times like uh, events like Gag Me with a Spoon where writers gather and share their works or a situation like this uh, with this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a couple of lines from a poem called Testament by Erica Jong. Orgasms of gloom convulse the world and the joy seekers huddle together. We meet on the pages of books and by beechwood fires. We meet scrawled blackly in many folded letters. We know each other by free and generous hands. We swing like spiders on each other's souls. Thank you for listening to the Lake Superior Writers Podcast, the audio arm of a literary nonprofit that supports the artistic development of writers and fosters a vibrant literary arts community in northeastern Minnesota and northern Wisconsin. To become a member, donate, or learn more about our mission and upcoming events, visit lakesuperiorwriters.org and find us on Facebook. Until next time, keep reading, keep writing.